As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bullen. Ben, today we're going to talk about, uh, well, the world's oldest running car. Ah, yes, and that's an important qualification Answering the question of what car is currently the world's oldest running car is way easier than saying what is the world's oldest car. I tell you, I think I passed the world's oldest running car sometimes on the way into work. <laughs> thing is beat up so badly, you know, held together with duct tape. It's got, uh, you know, growth on it. looks like algae, yeah. you know, broken windows, that kind of stuff, you know, held together with bungee cords. And hope. And <laughs> so so many coats of primer that yeah. you can measure its age like There's, a tree. It's held together with a lot of hope. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> um well, it may indeed be one of the world's oldest running cars bedeviling you on the interstate, but the official world's oldest running car is a car that a lot of people may not have ever heard of. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange make and uh, and model. Um, obviously, it's it's a uh, I don't know. I, I guess I want to say kind of an eccentric model, really, because it's a steam powered car. Yes, it's a steam powered car, uh, and it's from the era way before, cast your memory back, just like the Van Morrison song, uh, to an age before Henry Ford, to an age before anything resembling regulation of cars, anything resembling the uh, the commonalities that we have. Like, Scott, this this bad boy, this little steam car doesn't even have a steering wheel, does it? No, it doesn't. It has uh, one of those rudder-type uh, configurations for it. And uh, I, I just think... It's such an odd-looking vehicle. I mean, I guess we should just tell people what it is so they can look it up, right? Oh, yes, yes. Um, this goes way, 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 way back to, uh, well, pre, well, I guess maybe probably coexisting around the time when internal combustion was just not, just then being formulated, when it was, the idea was brand new. Absolutely. But they were already building steam cars, of course, because we've talked about that before, that steam cars are around a long time before that. Um, this one goes back to 1884, and uh, it's a model called the Dédion Bouton Trepardeau. And uh, I hope I got that right exactly. But those um, are those steam runabout is what? the one of the the full name that you'll see sometimes is 1884 
de do, here we go. Let's try it. De Dion Bouton El Trapado Dos a Dos Steam Runabout. Very good, Ben. Uh, I think you did an excellent job with the French. <laughs> well, uh, we'll maybe shorten that to the uh, De Dion Bouton or something like that. Yeah, maybe. let's or, do that. Or the Trepido. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. But, uh-huh. um, again, steam-powered car fueled by wood, by coal, by mm-hmm. paper, anything that'll burn, really. Yeah. And uh, it had this big hopper in the front. It, again, it, it looks like um, it almost looks like a steampunk invention, doesn't it? It really does. This would not be out of place at Dragon Con or another fan convention or even in a sci-fi movie. Uh, the car does seat four people. It is open air, uh, and these four people are sitting back to back, two facing forward, two facing reverse. Ah, yes. And you know what? I'm glad you said that thing about the uh, seats four and all that because there were other cars. There's another car that uh, is creating a little bit of controversy around this thing. Right. And I don't know if you're saving this until later or not, but I think it's important to note that this is uh, this kind of – it has a little bit of a resemblance to the modern automobile in that it does have four seats. Uh, you don't have to have a person that uh, that mans the boiler or anything like that. And that's right. one of the things that um, this other car, this other controversial vehicle, uh, there, there's a car from 1875, which, of course, predates this one, um, that the British car, uh, let's see, it's a British car that's housed at, housed at the National Motor Museum of Britain. And that claims to be the world's oldest car. However, it has only three wheels, so that's one of those, uh, you know, three-wheel mm-hmm. motorcycle workaround things. Although I don't think that pertained at the time; it's just a three-wheel design. Yeah. And uh, but it does require an attendant for the boiler at all times, and it doesn't really have any kind of resemblance to the modern automobile. However, the this Dion that we're talking about does have a uh, certain resemblance to the early, early, early automobiles. I mean, the the four four wheel, mm-hmm. four seat vehicles that you know people sat in a, a standard position. It wasn't anything really unusual, like pulled on a trailer behind it or anything like that. Right. No, it doesn't look like a wagon or anything like that. But um, um, it looks like you you could imagine it being an early automobile. Yes, that's that's the thing. You can imagine the the skeleton of the future automobiles of the world. Being in the Didion, the problem with a three-wheeled vehicle, again, is that it's, um, I guess the, the main objection is how, which of these comes closest, right, mm-hmm. to, to predating the modern car. And we have to, we have to be careful with that distinction because they are, again, uh, they are both steam powered. There is a difference, of course, in the, the type of steam technology they use, but that's why we have gone with our qualification, isn't it, Scott? Yeah. The oldest running car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it and it does in fact run. It runs very well. I mean, it's got this thing has a top speed, Ben, mm-hmm. of about thirty eight miles per hour, which was completely unexpected. Right. I didn't think that this thing would move much faster than you know just a a, a crawl. Uh-huh. You know, I thought it would be really really slow, but in eighteen eighty four, I mean, that's really really fast for thirty. I mean, thirty eight miles per hour. Um, now again, four wheels, four seats. Um, so it, the, the crazy thing about this car, it wasn't really, it was, it was discovered somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where it was discovered, but it wasn't running for decades right. prior to, uh, this auction that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Um, the brass, all the brass had been removed and melted down to help with, uh, the World War One effort. World War One, I, I said, mm-hmm. uh, which is strange. So pre-World War One, or since before World War One, this thing wasn't even operating. Um, all the brass fittings for the, uh, for all the steam, uh, mechanisms, you know, 
all the uh, all the piping and all everything, yep. all the fittings, everything was gone. Uh, so somebody had to take the original plans and rebuild the thing after decades of this thing just sitting around, probably in a barn, maybe Ooh. in a, a basement somewhere. Um, it was protected because the rest of the body lived. I don't know how well it survived. I mean, I, had, I didn't see it pre-restoration, but uh, post-restoration, it's right back to the way it looked. Right, so maybe we, some people might say that we should add another caveat, world's oldest restored running car. Yeah, maybe that's it. But, uh, I, I think that we can't, uh, we can't be accused of doing too much of an injustice. One, one note there for that, uh, top speed, that's around 60 kilometers an hour for our friends on the metric system. Uh, and at the time, this is just a side note, mm-hmm. at the time you, you read about, uh, Europe's first motoring competition. I did. You know what? That may be that may very well be the first auto automobile race in the entire world, really. Yeah. Um, there's some controversy about that, of course, because who's right. going to say this is the first of anything? But right. Um, yeah, it, goes, it also goes back almost to the the date of the car itself, right? Mm-hmm. The actual date was 1887. The Dion was the sole entrance. <laughs> well, you know, okay, I can I can tell you why this is. Other people that had a car like this just didn't bother to show up. Maybe yep. they couldn't show up because the thing didn't run. Um, there's could be, there could be a, a variety of reasons why they, the other participants didn't make it, but they expected to have more than just one entrance. So it was supposed to be a race, but it wasn't really a race. It ended up just being kind of a uh, ceremonial run for this uh, De Dion, right? Like a, like a demo, yeah, or an yeah, exhibition. Exactly. And it was, it was pretty short. I think it was like 1.2 miles, right? Yes. It was a very short race. And uh, one of the founders of the company that I, we're going to talk about the, the car company itself. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about the auction first, then the car company. Uh, but one of the founders, George Bouton, uh, was the driver of this thing. And I mean, how strange for him to show up, you know, to this, this race and be the only one to show up. Mm-hmm. Just kind of make a, uh, a ceremonial pass. Of course, that's great um, advertising, you know, promotion. Yeah, can't beat that. Fantastic promotion because, you know, one one entrant, lots of spectators. Everybody's going to know the name. And it's going to be, uh, you know, reported in the papers as, as being, you know, the, the victor in, on this day. Uh, so yeah, good for him. I mean, it was, a, it was a boon for the company. Yeah, absolutely. And another note here. uh the first official land speed record was set in 1898, and it wasn't that far. It wasn't that much faster. It was uh, what we say 37, 38 miles per hour. 38 is the top speed. 38 for the De Dion, and and that's in 1887 ish. Uh, 1898, the world land speed record becomes 39. And like a little bit over 39 miles per hour. No kidding. So not much of a difference. Wow. Wow, so that was uh, that was screaming fast in that day, right? Yes. Hey, let's uh, let's talk about the auction because oh, this yeah. is this is where this whole thing comes into play. Is because no one had really even heard about this car until until this point. You know, there was probably some speculation that there was a you know the oldest car sitting in some museum somewhere, but no one had really tracked down what that was. And then mm-hmm. finally, you know, there's this auction that happens in uh, in see, uh, Hershey, in, Pennsylvania. Yeah, in 2011. So it's a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, and this thing rolls across the block, and it does. Exactly, well, just about exactly twice as well as they expected it to, dollar-wise, in this auction. Right. Originally, they thought it would it would be around a five hundred thousand dollars starting bid, but then it ends up being sold for four point six million dollars. Four point six million for this car, and I mean, <laughs> you look at it; it's just a uh, it's a it's an iron block. Really, with I mean, it's it's beautiful. It really is. I mean, I, I like it. I think it's I think it's cool, but. Um, I don't know, $4.6 million for that thing, Ben? I, 
Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling with it. I, in a way, I see it's worth it as a museum piece. In the other, in another way, yeah. that's four point six million dollars. <laughs> but they did expect it. They, you know, you said the starting bid is five hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of money in, to begin with. I think they expected it to get just over two million dollars on auction block, but the bidding just took off when it went across the uh, across the stage. Yeah. So uh, you know, they were exceptionally pleased. I think RM Auctions was the uh, auction house that that did this in Hershey, Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, so this thing is 127 years old at the auction point. Now it's 129 this year. Um, that's the highest price ever paid for an early automobile at auction, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and whoever bought this thing, their name hasn't been made public. So um, I don't know if that's changed since then. Like if it showed up in someone's collection, I'm sure that someone knows where that thing is right now. Yeah, but it's not public knowledge at this point. I think maybe if you dig in deep to some forums, you might be able to find the private collector himself maybe bragging or one of his buddies. You know, I would think after two years that someone knows where that thing is. So I mean, it's, it's got to be out there. I just didn't I didn't dig deep enough, I'll tell you, to find out where it is or where it exists. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, should, we should go ahead and note that once this hit the net and once this hit the airwaves, people wanted to know so much more about this car and in our look at the car itself we found a fascinating story about a little auto company called De Dion. Yeah, you know what though? I'm um, I think that maybe before we do that. Mm-hmm. Let's uh let's talk about something just a little bit different. I know we've uh, we've been kind of been getting back into our movie club. Oh thing, yeah, right. Can you and, tell? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited about today's uh today's pick because um <laughs> I've got uh, you've pre-warned me about what you're going to uh, going to mention today. Yeah, and I like it. Oh, good. That's great because I am unreasonably excited about this, ladies and gentlemen. Now Scott and I can finally talk about one of I think one of our favorite movies. Yeah, it's got to be up there. It's up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is Ghostbusters, the original 1984 supernatural meets science fiction adventure for the ages. Yeah, I said it. Ghostbusters is out on Netflix now, and why are we talking about this on a car show, Scott? I, you know what? Should I just say it because just say it, it. Ecto One, and I know that everybody else is all excited about this too. If if they'd seen the movie, they they know about it because Ecto One was such a cool car. It was the Ghostbusters car. Yeah, and it was this really cool ambulance that was a was an old Cadillac, right? A mm-hmm. six, I want um, early sixties Cadillac. I don't know what year specifically. Um, early sixties. Well, I think it was made by the Miller Meteor Company, mm-hmm. who is that uh, specialty car maker who makes hearses and ambulances. Um, fantastic car, but they made it look really cool with a lot of add-on things, kind of like you know the uh, the DeLorean in Back to the Future. Absolutely, good comparison. Yeah, it's got sirens on the top. It's got some um, vaguely scientific equipment. It also holds the proton packs and uh, <laughs> the traps for ghosts. Uh, the Ecto One. In case for some reason you haven't seen Ghostbusters, uh, I'm I'm sorry. This is your chance. Uh, you will feel so much better. Uh, the Ecto One is uh, not necessarily one of the stars of the show, but when the Ghostbusters really start busting ghosts and things are really kicked up a notch and the story just takes off then the Ecto-1 becomes like the fifth member of the team. Yeah, they're driving it all over New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first thing you see when they pull up to a building, you know, that, that's supposedly haunted, you know, has all these uh, these creatures inside that are there to, mm-hmm. uh, to excise, I guess, to remove from the building. Now, is that the right term? I guess, what do they do with them? They uh, they suck them into that uh, that, that yeah. wand thing that they had. It was such a cool movie. Uh-huh. A they, neat idea. They sucked them into the trap. They heard them. They kind of lasso them with the proton packs. 
and put them into, oh gosh, Ghostbuster fans are going to hate us because I can't remember the name of the equipment, but they put them in the ghost trap. Sure. And every kid in the 80s had probably some version of this toy. And then you they feed them into this giant repository that holds all these captured ghosts. Um, just so you guys know, this is not necessarily a spoiler because we're not telling you how it ends. But the bad guys in this film are the EPA, which I thought was an interesting choice. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. sure they're the EPA, right? I'm pretty sure that uh, a lot of our listeners will agree. <laughs> but, uh, so Ecto-1 yeah. is so cool. If Really, if you get a chance to see this movie, that mo- and I, I'll say that Ecto-1 is one of the stars of the, of the, the Definitely. film. Definitely. Ecto-1 is the fifth Ghostbuster. Now, if you've never seen the film or if you uh, want to watch it with your kids for the first time, uh, yeah, some of the special effects could be a little dated, but the Ecto-1, in this day and age, Scott, still looks amazing. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was booted! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Yeah, the De Dion Bouton, which, uh, you know, is really a combination of, well, three, well, you know, the first car, I guess, the De Dion Bouton Trepardeau mm-hmm. is, uh, the combination of the three founders of the company. All three of them got their names on this first vehicle. And uh, I find that kind of interesting because the company was founded in 1883. Um, and it lasted for a long, long time. It lasted until 1932. So just, uh, I mean, after World War One, just prior to World War Two. um, but these founders, I guess, uh, Jules Albert de Dion and Ooh. George Bouton and Charles Trepardeau were the three founders of the company. Yes, and uh, interesting story about the way they meet. Uh, Jules himself is from a very wealthy, very old family. He is an aristocrat, uh, a, a marquis, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, he is walking by, so the story goes, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Scott, He's walking by a toy shop. Yeah, a scientific toy shop. Which, ah, yes, which yeah. is pretty cool. Like the, it's kind of like the uh, 19th century version of the Discovery Store. Or yeah, something. and this is in 1881. Mm-hmm. So he's walking by this toy shop, and what does he see in the window? He sees a little steam locomotive. Yeah, just a toy steam locomotive that's that's sitting there that uh, supposedly these guys had built or had created, made. Yeah. Um, and the uh, the the owners of the company were George Bouton. And uh, uh, Charles Trepardeau. Yeah, and Trepardeau was Bouton's brother-in-law. And at the time, things weren't going that well for them. They were poor as sin. They were broke as a joke without a punchline. And they were trying to make a living selling these scientific toys. So um, the thing that the thing that it turns out, though, that a lot of people didn't know is that they also had a dream of building a large steam-powered vehicle. Yeah, because, you know, there are other steam vehicles around at the time. I think, uh, I want to say Stanley was probably around at the time. I didn't I didn't check the dates on the Stanley so the company. Stanley, but, uh, yeah, like the Stanley steam, cars. steam cars, of course. Yeah, they're, they're uh, I, I would guess they're right around this time. I don't, I'll have to check the dates on it. But um, anyways, D. Dion, he wanted to buy a uh, another version of this toy steam locomotive. He, he said, you know, I'd like you to make another copy of that for me. And they said, that's fine. And, you know, they, so they've all three got this kind of, Early interest in steam power. They're all intrigued by or inspired by steam, as some people like to say. Yeah. Um, and, of course, with no money, um, you know, um, Bhutan and Trepardeau say that, well, you know, with this De Dion guy's money, with his backing, we might be able to make this work because all three of us have similar interests. So mm-hmm. let's all get together. Let's form a, you know, we have the, the know-how, you have the money. Let's get together and and build that car that we're talking about. And so they did that. In uh, well, they founded a company in 1883 to do so. Um, and they started building these steam cars with a, an unsuccessful attempt. Um, the, yeah. the first car <laughs> burned right to the ground. Yeah, um, destroyed by fire uh, in 1883. Which won't surprise you when you look at the uh, the first De Dion uh, Bouton that, that we're uh, we're talking about. For here. sure, they are flammable. Yeah, they're very flammable. And uh, you know, I mean, I've I've watched other steam cars being operated, and I can completely understand how a steam car would burn right to the ground. I get it. Yeah. Um, so so you, you know, the first attempt unsuccessful. Second attempt. Wildly successful. Uh, they had a uh, they had a car that actually worked. It ran. Everything was uh, was just right about it. Yeah the um, the boiler and the engine were mounted at the front. Uh, the it was steering with the rear, and the excuse me the wheels were the rear wheel were steering. Uh, the front wheels were powered by belts. Um, that's the one that burned to the ground, right? Uh, the the next one had more conventional steering and it had rear wheel drive. 
Wow, I almost have my rural juror moment. <laughs> Rear a, wheel drive. It's a tough one to say. <laughs> it's a tough one to say. So there's uh and and this is kind of crazy, Ben. In the uh in the late eighteen eighties, these guys were actually for a short time the world's largest automobile manufacturers. I'm so glad you said that. It started it's it started like really slowly. I mean with this this unsuccessful attempt and then, you know, the this car that we're talking about, the uh the Bouton Trepardeau. And uh soon afterwards, these guys are building cars um, faster than anybody else. Now again, late eighteen eighties, I wonder how many cars that really means. Right. Is there a trick in the statistics there? Um they also they were offering what are called steam tricycles. Mm-hmm. So these things were three wheeled vehicles. The these are not your children's tricycles, is what we're saying. They're tricycles for grown ups. They are steam powered. Uh, they're pretty darn close to cars. Uh, they can be uh, joined by a tractor. They can pull trailers. I saw a few photos of of them pulling a trailer, mm-hmm. and uh, this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, there's a a grown man. Riding on a tricycle, which looks like a tricycle, really. It's a big, huge tricycle with uh, with great big wheels and everything. Yeah. Really, a kind of a neat vehicle. But then it's pulling this ridiculous-looking trailer behind it with some guy in a suit, you know, and a, and a, a bowler cap. Yeah. Um, and looking very stern with his big, you know, bushy mustache and everything and a cigar, probably. Um, it, it looks ridiculous, a grown-up, pulling a grown-up on a tricycle in a, in a cart. It looks yeah. like a kid's toy. But... You know, honestly, it's a cool vehicle for the time because it, mobility just wasn't what it is now, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, th- this is kind of one of the only options, and it was a good option. Uh, steam power was something that people were really buying into at the time. They were saying, this is this is it. This is the way of the future. Right. And uh, it's interesting when we look back in history and we wonder how far steam power could have gone. Was it just, was it always destined to be sort of the laser disc of uh, locomotion? But the um, what's interesting here is... That eventually, around 1894, their internal tensions began to arise in the auto company because um, everybody except for one, two of the guys, Bouton and De Dion himself, were convinced that internal combustion not steam power would be the way to go. Yeah, and Trepardeau, he didn't agree with that. So in, uh, boy, 1894, uh, as soon as they kind of branched out into the internal combustion engine world, I guess, um, he, he strongly supported steam power, of course. So he said, you know what, I'm out, I'm done. Yep. And uh, he walked away from the company. So um, then it's just uh, De Dion and Bouton. And that's where we have the... The Dion Bouton company that we uh, that we're talking about from again 1883 to 1932. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, there's a couple things that I want to mention. They were racing steam cars in the 1890s, so yeah, know, they were already already kind of on that bandwagon. Oh, when they didn't get disqualified. Yeah, is. and <laughs> why is that? They uh, they were disqualified, I believe, in uh, one 1894 race, uh, the Paris Rhone race, because their vehicle needed both a driver and a stoker, so it needed someone to stoke the flames for the hmm. boiler. Oh, okay, and they didn't really even need that. They didn't require it, right? Uh, this was a larger vehicle that was introduced at a different oh. time. So they were making vehicles, they were racing, um, but they were, you know, it's one of the problems of being a pioneer, man. I guess so. you got to read that. Uh, you down. got to read that rule book carefully before you go to the races, right? Right. All right. So they also made steam buses and trucks. Yep. And they yep. did. They, made, they actually made steam buses and trucks all the way until 1904, which I found surprising because, you know, they're already playing around with, uh, with internal combustion in 1894. So that's a decade later that they're still building these steam vehicles. Um, oh, you know what? 
I'm going to step back in time just a moment because okay. in 1889, now this company, they're, they're fantastic engine builders apparently, uh, because in 1889, the company built a two-row, ten-cylinder rotary engine, uh, which is kind of like the radial configuration that you see on the front of, uh, like the old airplanes. You know, mm-hmm. the, uh, that's the kind of rotary that we're talking about, not like the Mazda rotary engine. But, <laughs> right. Um, you know, the, uh, not the Wankel rotary, I mean. Um, this is like the radial configuration you'd see on old airplanes with the cylinders kind of in a, uh, in a sun pattern. Uh, so they made a two-row, ten cylinder rotary engine all the way back in 1889 that operated and um, again you mentioned the tricycles already mm-hmm. um, they, they also made tri cars which were the three wheel cars of course and they made four wheelers of course um, and they, uh, they also started supplying engines to other manufacturers as important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner Gene Eugene Fodor Gene will boot it much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, they uh, had licensed it to more than 100 manufacturers. You'll see numbers that vary. Uh, One of the common accepted ones is 150 manufacturers, but... um, 
these predecessors of motorcycles, known as moto bicycles, mm-hmm. uh, loved the Dion Bouton engines um, because this it gave about. Now I know this sounds weird in our modern day. It, it produced about 1.3 horsepower. That sounds all right. Yeah, it doesn't sound too bad. And uh, it was copied, or at least De Dion's advocates claim, their engine design was copied by people um, around the world, including motorcycle makers like Harley-Davidson and Indian. Oh, boy, those are fighting words, Ben. Those are fighting words. Yeah, you're saying, so you're saying Harley-Davidson copied a French company, Ben. I'm not. I'm saying that people who are fans <laughs> of De Dion say that. Please, uh, I understand. please, Hells Angels. I know. I'm, not try- I'm trying to get you in a little <laughs> bit of trouble. But listen, by 1900, they were producing 400 cars a year mm-hmm. and 3,200 engines per year. So they were shipping these, you know, these other um, uh, 2,800 engines to other companies to put in their vehicles or on their motorbikes or whatever they were doing with them. Um, and by 1904, 1904, Ben, they were producing 40,000, or they had built 40,000 engines at that point. Now, also, we need to keep in mind that at this point, we still haven't had the revolution of the assembly line. So all of these engines are handmade, mm-hmm. as well as the cars. But to me, the engines are more impressive. Get this, 1910, mm-hmm. the first company to build a successful V8 engine was De Dion Bouton. So I would never uh, you know, have expected, rather, that, uh, that De Dion Bouton was the first successful V8 engine manufacturer. I just I wouldn't have ever put the two together. Yeah. Um, and they also made, uh, this, this is where this, well, this World War I thing uh, comes in. <laughs> World War I thing. It sounds funny when I say it like that. But, <laughs> but you know, how we talk often about how automobile manufacturers and, I mean, everybody, I mean, Mm-hmm. Anybody who was in the blacksmith profession, anybody who uh, you know was uh, was machining anything, even farriers, anything, anybody that would stamp steel, uh, they, they or, or iron or whatever. I mean, uh, they, they were creating things for the war effort, and and that's true for World War One, World War Two, all the wars. Uh, they were building aircraft engines, they were building mm-hmm. armored vehicles, they were mm-hmm. building gun parts, yeah. and uh, and later they supplied the French army with anti yeah anti aircraft guns that were mounted on V eight powered De Dion Bouton trucks. And those were all built between 1913 and 1918. That sounds like a cool vehicle. Yeah, which is a massive undertaking. And, you know, this is familiar, but it's it's still always going to fascinate me, Scott, that um, the power that an industry can have when it, when it throws itself entirely into um, a single effort, you know? Yeah, it completely switches over. I mean, we're doing something strictly for our own profit and our own, uh, our own, well, pleasure, really. I mean, sure. for, you know, the, the masses, I guess. Well, let's, let's keep in mind, to be candid, for, for much of the beginning years, uh, these automobiles were, uh, uh, a rich boy's toys. Definitely, yeah. They, uh, they were something that, you know, was, you didn't have to have a car really because you could have a horse and you know horse and buggy or or a wagon that they could they could pull or you could just ride a horse into town you know and tie it up there at the right. uh, at the stall um, at the at the uh, the post but um, you know the, the, to drive a car into town that was something else I mean you'd arrived at that point right I mean in yeah. the early 1880s frightening the local townsfolk yeah really I mean it's I know it sounds funny but some some towns some villages cities they didn't get to see. Automobiles until you know 1910 or something mm. like that. You know they they just weren't around if they were if they were remote enough. I feel sorry for the horses. Wouldn't that scare the hell out of you? I think it would. <laughs> you know it still does. You know horses are, are freaked out by this in in cities now where they're pulling you know horse uh, horse carriages on uh, you know like the uh, the tourists that go through the oh, cities yeah, and things. Yeah. Horses are still scared of cars. So I can imagine back then, uh, you know they were loud. They were they were. Um, 
while well, they were noisy, they were they were kind of um, something completely out of the ordinary. I had never seen one, mm-hmm. so uh, it had to be quite a shock. Um, man, I'm getting way off on. Oh yeah, yeah. Here. Sorry. Speaking of shocks, let's go to after World War One. Yeah, sure. So after World War One, uh, they continued to build these uh, to build these cars and uh, and trucks and things like that. But they sure. also branched out into rail cars. Um, in the 1920s, they were building rail cars, um, and I think they. they Kind of lasted about a decade or so, and then they gave that up just before the company ended as well, like in 19, right. 19, the early 1930s. Yeah, the um, the thing is that after World War One, they were still producing a, a lot of their typical consumer fare. So they were still making V8 engines. Uh, they came out with some different types of models, a Type LA and a Type LB, uh, the primary difference being in the engine used. And... Uh, the problem was that these were expensive, you know, and sales were sluggish. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, especially after the destruction that happened in the market, um, were busy repairing their quality of life and couldn't afford uh, a new expensive toy like a car. Um, there was, for a time, there was an idea that they were going to be taken over by another car company, one or the other. One or the other, but nothing came of it. Yeah, I think the two that they mentioned were Mercedes or Peugeot, mm-hmm. uh, but that never happened. Yeah, and so they still, they they ended, as you said, production of their passenger cars in 1932, but sales kept dwindling. Um, and then, this is interesting. I wanted to ask you about this, Scott. Uh, the the ultimate end of the Dion name. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we know that there are some questions there. We know that it, even if you go as recently as the 1950s, Land Rovers had the badge. Yeah, so this is like 20, 23 years later that suddenly the De Dion name pops up again. And this is kind of weird because they built some commercial vehicles uh, around 1950 with uh, with De Dion a uh, Dion badge on them, and I would guess a Dion engine. I, I think that's what's going on. Um, but they actually built a few of these uh, Dion badged Land Rovers in early 1950s, and uh, and that was it. There were just a few of these things uh, hanging around, and then that was kind of the last anybody heard of the company until the mid 1950s, about 1955, when a motorcycle manufacturer uh, bought the company's name, and really that's about it. I mean that's uh, that's the end of the name. So you know the the um, the whole legacy of this company, I mean, I don't know how long that is from 83 to uh, 32, mm-hmm. um, just about 50 years, right? Yeah. Um, 51 years, something like that, 49. It's, uh, it, I mean, mostly I guess this company would re- be remembered as a an engine company. Yeah, I would agree with that because that would be, if you look at just their output, that's the bulk of their contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we do also have to say that they did have um, a widespread reputation for durability and consistency. And I like to think that if the three founders were alive today, they would be um they they would be pretty happy with knowing that they created the world's oldest running car. Yeah, no kidding. I mean for that thing to hang on this long, I mean that's uh that's a, a, a true test of uh, the product's uh, durability, its reliability. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to last this long, 129 years, that's amazing. I know someone's, you know, babying this thing and taking care of it, and I, I got that. But, um, you know, and that could happen with any car, really. Yeah. But for this one to last that long, that's that's something special, because a lot of these just ended up in uh, really just a, a rust heap, you know, in someone's garage somewhere. Sure. Or uh, a 
war scrap field. Yeah, I, I can't believe the whole thing wasn't scrap for the war. Just the brass. That was that was very lucky on the part of uh, you know whoever found this thing that they that they found a nearly complete vehicle and that they could find the original plans to go back and rebuild this thing um, and to create something that's worth you know four point six million dollars at auction. That's pretty amazing. Oh, uh, I do have a rumor for us to end this on. Oh, great. I don't have the identity of the owner. But the rumor has it. Uh, rumor has it that the, it, the private collector lives in Texas, really, and is taking taking very very good care of this. Um, I'll go ahead and say it. This this, this museum piece. Mm-hmm. I feel a little like Indiana Jones. Um, do you remember that scene in Indiana Jones? I think it's a uh, oh the um, the third one, the Search for the Holy Grail one. Mm-hmm. Where uh, he's yelling, it belongs in a museum. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, it's but a, he is taking care of it. Yeah, I understand that, and I bet I would bet that this thing shows up at a concourse event sometime. Oh yeah, you know, it's going to make uh, make it across the stage for the Pebbles, judging and all Pebble that. Pebble Beach or something. Yeah, exactly. It's gonna it's gonna show up here or there. I'm sure that shows, you know, these uh, these early automobile shows are, are dying to get this thing to appear. Oh my gosh! Um, can you imagine seeing it in person? It's kind of the crown jewel of you know the uh, the early automobile. Okay, we'll end this on that high note. Uh, Scott, you and I are heading off to work on our next episodes and our brand new website, carstuffshow.com. Yeah, that's right. There's uh, there's blog posts there. You can uh, you can check out the podcast, of course. All of our all of our podcasts are there. The entire library of them. Yeah, um, which is pretty good. I mean, I, I know iTunes is good, but I think you can only get what's it two hundred episodes. Uh, iTunes will cut you off after the most recent three hundred. Okay. We have more than 300 shows we now. Absolutely do have more than that. We've been doing this for many years now. So there's that. There's, uh, like I said, there's blog posts. There's videos there. Yep. Uh, you can link to our Facebook from that, our Twitter feed. Oh, all yeah. Kinds, all kinds of stuff. And on our Twitter and our Facebook, you can drop us lines directly if you would like to uh, suggest something new for us to cover in the future or if you would like to uh, show us some pictures of your car, which we are always big fans of. Um, or heck, if you want to cut out the social media, you can send us an email directly. We are carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. 
like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.